Well, okay, I can see by the old clock on the uh, computer here. Should be should be the beginning of the show. Sorry, we're having technical difficulties. I can't hear the intro music. Uh, so I'm going to make the assumption that I'm on the air and say to you, a child is born in Bethlehem. Alleluia. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Coming to you today from the Southern Command Center, deep behind, behind the orange curtain. of America, uh, building on what we said last week. But first, this is the Christmas season, and I want to talk about the nativity and the visit of the shepherds to the manger and what that, what that all means to you and me today. So, beginning with the birth of Christ. This is from Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went forth from the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, commanding that all the people of the empire should be enrolled. Each one had given his name in his own city, that is, in the, in the tribe and the city to which he belonged. So, Bethlehem, the city of David, because they were of the family of that king. But the city being crowded with, with strangers who had come for the enrollment, they could not obtain lodging in the inn and were forced to seek shelter in a stable outside the city. And it came, it came to pass, when they were there, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room room for them in the inn. Caesar Augustus was the ruler of a vast empire, the Roman Empire, which in those days included Judea. Herod, uh, Herod the Great, father of Herod Antipas, was not an independent sovereign. He was a, a puppet king governing in the name of the Roman emperor, and he had to pay a part of the taxes that he collected to Rome as a tribute. So the enrollment of the subjects of the empire had to take place in Judea as well as elsewhere. And according to the Jewish customs, it was made by tribe and family. Each had to go to his own city, that is the town where his family originated and in which the public register was kept. And Bethlehem was the town to which David had belonged. And as both Mary and Joseph were descended from him, their names had to be inscribed there. So Bethlehem lay about five miles to the south of Jerusalem, and the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 70 miles and kind of rough and difficult in those days. The little town of Bethlehem, as we sing in the song, stood on the ridge of a hill a little higher than Mount Zion, which, as you know, was the highest point in ancient Jerusalem, about 2,300 feet. So when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn, so they went to a cave or a grotto outside the town, which in bad weather was used as a stable by uh, local shepherds and therefore was fitted with a manger, which is to say a feeding trough for the animals. The Emperor Constantine and his mother, centuries later, uh, his mother, St. Helena, they built there a splendid church, which uh, is still extant, built a church over the grotto, the Church of the Nativity. And so in, in the Grotto of the Nativity, there were 32 lamps that were kept burning there continuously for over a thousand years. And I've done uh, some at least cursory research, but I haven't been able to find the reason why there were 32. And I can only surmise that it was, uh, since our Lord was believed to be 33 at the time of the crucifixion, that the 32 lamps represented the years that would pass from his nativity until he entered into his passion. Uh, tradition tells us that while Mary was absorbed in prayer, 
the child was born to her. And one of my pet peeves with most of the Jesus movies is that Mary is portrayed as undergoing the pain of childbirth, which, of course, is, is part of the curse of original sin, from which we know she was preserved by a singular grace. She didn't have her original sin taken away. She never uh, had the stain of original sin. And as we know, she also remained a virgin after the birth of Christ, as she was before. Now, the Roman Catechism describes the birth of Christ this way. It describes it as, quote, wonderful beyond expression or conception. It says, he is born of the mother without any diminution of her maternal virginity. And as he afterward went forth from the sepulcher while it was closed and sealed, and entered the room in which his disciples were assembled, the doors being shut, or not to depart from natural events, which we witness every day, as the rays of the sun penetrate without breaking or injuring in the least the substance of glass. After a like but more incomprehensible manner, did Jesus Christ come forth from his mother's womb without injury to her maternal virginity, which, immaculate and perpetual, forms the just theme of our eulogy. This was the work of the Holy Ghost, who at the conception and birth of the Son so favored the virgin mother as to impart to her fecundity, fruitfulness, and yet preserve inviolate her perpetual virginity. This is not a fairy tale. <clears throat> this is not a, a childish storybook understanding of the historical event. This is Catholic dogma. The divine maternity and the perpetual virginity of Mary are de fide. They are non-negotiable. Remember, I, I always say that a traditional Catholic is not necessarily one who goes exclusively to the traditional Latin Mass, but one who can say the act of faith and mean it. Oh my God, I believe all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches because thou hast revealed them who canst neither deceive nor be deceived. And so, blessed Mary, virgin and mother, wrapped him in swaddling clothes with her own hands and laid him in the manger belonging to the stable and full of faith adored him as the Son of the Most High. So what does that scriptural account of the birth of Christ teach us? Well, first off, it's divine providence. I mean, the prophet Micaiah had foretold that the Savior would be born at Bethlehem. But how is it likely that this prophecy will be fulfilled, seeing that Mary, who was chosen to be the mother of the divine Savior, lived in Nazareth? It was the providence of God that directed the pagan emperor of Rome to order all his subjects to be enrolled, and that this decree should be executed in Judea at the very time when the birth of the Redeemer was at hand. And obedient to authority knowing that all authority comes from God, Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem to inscribe their names in the city from which their, their royal uh, race originated. And, and so, unwittingly then, the Roman emperor was made to take part in the fulfillment of the prophecy that the, the Redeemer would be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. Not unlike the way Pilate um, commanded that a sign be placed on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know, when you think about it, that was actually the first written testimony to the kingship of Christ. And we know that he is being born a king, and more than that, a divine king. Jesus Christ is true man, born of the Virgin Mary, the child of Mary, the son of David, 
David, right? That is to say his descendant. But he's also true God, son of the Most High, as was announced to uh, Mary by the angel. And he shows himself to us as man. Because in the crib, you know, we, we would see nothing but a little child. But he reveals himself as God to our hearing because the angels come to announce that this little child in the crib is the Savior, Christ the Lord himself. And so we fall on our knees before the crib, and we adore the child. We worship here. We say, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary. The eternal Son became man. <clears throat> he hid his, his godhood, his, his omnipotence, his, his majesty, his power, under the form of a helpless child. He chose to be completely helpless to depend entirely upon Mary and Joseph. The Lord of, of the universe took the form of a servant and became like to us in all things except sin. Why? Why did he become man? Why did he suffer and die? Why did he want to redeem us in the first place? And it's because he loved us and loves us with an infinite and divine love. John says in his gospel, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten son, etc. And in his first epistle, he says, let us, let us therefore love God, because God first loved us. Scripture says Mary brought forth her firstborn son. And some would say, does this not suggest that Mary had other children? Okay, let's take this care, care of this one right now. Uh, in a word, no. Firstborn is a legal term. It has to do with the child's, uh, the son's social standing and, of course, the right of inheritance, which is the whole point. It does not imply that Mary had other children after Jesus, only that she had none before him. As the only begotten one, Scripture also refers to Jesus as the firstborn of God the Father, that there were no more messiahs. All right, we celebrate the Nativity with the Feast of Christmas. And, of course, of course, I, I hope you had a very merry one, uh, Christmas passing just a few days ago. And um, I have a, a little magnet that I uh, try to remember to put on my car every year from Knights of Columbus. It has that motto, keep Christ in Christmas, uh, something they've been promoting for many years. But this year I saw a meme on the Internet that said the best way to keep Christ in Christmas is to keep mass in Christmas. And I thought that was a very good message for for our day and for uh, Catholics in particular. We celebrate Christmas at this time each year because, according to tradition, our Lord was born in the night between the 24th and 25th of December. So Christmas, Christ Mass, or the Nativity of our Lord, um, officially, is therefore kept on the 25th of December, and on this great feast, three Masses may be said by each priest. You know, a priest is obliged to say Mass every day. On Christmas, he can say three. And so that's a uh, that's a special um, sure a special thing that he can do, and I'm going to talk about that in three masses and a lot more about Christmas when we come back. More no nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. with the technical end of things today. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I know I talked about it in the chat the other day, 
but they're upgrading the internet service in our area, and it is playing havoc with uh, both the telephone lines and with our uh, with our internet service uh, provide, provider. So uh, sorry about the cutting in and out. One more time, the reason we, they say three masses on, on Christmas, or priests can say three masses on Christmas, Christmas Day, is thank the give thanks to the three persons of the Trinity to honor the threefold birth of Christ, so his eternal birth uh, in the bosom of the Heavenly Father right, as only, be, only begotten Son, God the Son, his temporal birth from uh, the Virgin Mary on Christmas Day, and his spiritual birth in our hearts, which he ocup- occupies by his grace. So that first Mass is said at midnight to remind us that before Jesus Christ was born, the world was without the true light and lay in, dar- in darkness and the shadow of death. Again, it was in the night that he was born, because both his temporal and eternal births are mysterious truths and incomprehensible to our understanding. So that's why in the night. The second Mass is celebrated at dawn, because the birth of Christ brought light to the Gentiles, whose salvation was then nigh. And because, according to tradition, it was about that hour that the shepherds came to see and adore the newborn Savior, which we're going to talk about next. And then the third Mass uh, is celebrated in the daytime because Christ dispersed the darkness of ignorance and appeared as the light of the world, like it says in John 1, uh, verse 9. But amidst the joy of this very short season, just 12 days from December 25 to January 6, Feast of the Epiphany, we also realize that the sufferings of Jesus began with his birth. The Son of God became man to suffer for us, to make satisfaction for our sins, to redeem us from sin and hell. All of his life he suffered unspeakably for us, and his sufferings began with his birth. He came into the world in a state of of poverty and humility. For the Son of God, uh, God the Son, to take to himself a human nature... To do that at all would have been an infinite humiliation. Even if he'd been born, you know, in, in a castle, in a royal palace, if, and had been laid on, a, on a silk cushions in a golden cradle. But he desired to humble himself even more. And so he was born into the world in a, in a stable and, and laid in this, in a manger, the, the rudest kind of crib. The Lord of the universe, the, the son of David, of whose kingdom there, there shall be no end, could find I know home in the city of David. Shut out from the dwellings of man, rejected by human society, he was driven to find refuge among the beasts. Not unlike uh, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, his spirit drives him into the desert and says he was among the beasts. He was wrapped in, in, in the coarsest of swaddling bands, laid in a manger belonging to the shepherds. Jesus himself would say in Luke chapter 9, 58, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He had no comfortable little bed, no soft worn pillow. His tender body was laid on, on hard straw in a narrow crib and was exposed to the damp winter air. A piece of wood at his birth and a piece of wood at his death. That was all that Jesus received from this world. But our Lord chose for himself this this extreme poverty and this humility to make satisfaction even from the day of his birth for our many sins of of pride, for for our concupiscence of the eyes or concupiscence of the flesh, to give us an an example of humility and self-denial 
and mortification. Man fell by pride, desiring the impossible, namely to be as God. And that fall was so deep that he fell into the bondage of Satan and the concupiscence of the eyes and the flesh and into sins and, and crimes of the worst description. And in order to free us from that, in order to free us from sin and from hell, which is the consequence of sin, God the Son became man and was like to us in all things except sin so that we might become once more the children of God. He humbled himself that we might be exalted. He became poor that we might be rich in grace here and now and even richer are still someday in heaven. So how about this? Consider this. It's coming to, uh, time to make your New Year's resolutions. So when you next visit your church, why not go before the nativity scene and kneel down before the crib and thank our Lord Jesus with all your heart and renounce anything and everything in your life that's not pleasing to him. It's like St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 43, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And of course, that, uh, that feast of the circumcision, the octave of Christmas, uh, New Year's Day coming up, and the reading, the gospel for that, I, I believe in, in um, the Novus Ordo as well, is the shepherds at the manger. So we're going to look at that, Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. There were in the same country shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the brightness of God showed round about them, and they were seized with a great fear. But the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For to this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Then there was with the angel a multitude of them, the heavenly hosts praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of goodwill. When the angels had disappeared, the shepherds said one to another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see the word that has come to pass, which the Lord hath shown us. Going in haste, they found Mary and Joseph in the stable and the newborn babe lying in the manger. The shepherds adored him and went back to their flocks, praising and glorifying God for the wonders they had seen and heard. All the people that heard these things from the shepherds were astonished, but Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And after eight days, the child was circumcised, and his name was called Jesus, as the angel had commanded. That's why the words of the Holy Gospel. So scripture says they were in the same country, shepherds. And this refers to a valley uh, below the town of Bethlehem. And it was in those parts that once upon a time, David, the uh, forefather of our Redeemer, kept his father's sheep. Uh, and it says that uh, the shepherds saw the angels surrounded by the brightness of God. So that light was not only the glory of the angels, but rather a glimpse of, of that supernatural and undying light by which God, who cannot be gazed upon by the mortal eye, revealed himself, right? uh, much as Jesus does in the Transfiguration. Right, the Son of God, who hid his divine glory under the form of that poor child, wanted to reveal his divinity through the angels 
who are clothed with his glory, right? That's the, the, the old King James, the glory of the Lord showed round about them. And the angel tells them that the babe in Bethlehem is Christ the Lord, Christ the anointed, right? The Messiah. And that they would find Christ the Lord, a little infant lying in a manger, like the poorest, of, uh, poorer than the poorest child. And, you know, the shepherds might, perchance, uh, have doubted such a sign. But immediately another was given to them. A multitude of the heavenly host appeared. That's it. An innumerable crowd of angels appeared, singing glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds believed. They believed because of the heavenly splendor and the host of angels and the inspiring song. All of that filled them with this holy awe, right? The, The fear of the Lord, as well as unspeakable joy. They believed. Believed that the Lord had sent the message and that, um, and they had one thought, which is let's go and see. And so the scripture says they went in haste. They were eager to see this child who, according to what the angels had said, was come to be their savior. And they found the baby exactly as the angel had described. And so they believed all the rest that had been told them about the child, that, that he was Christ the Lord. And they fell on their knees before the manger and they adored him. You know, their hearts were full of the glad news they'd received. And they related, uh, you know, according to tradition, everything they'd seen and heard, they first told to the Holy Mother of God and to to St. Joseph and then to their friends and acquaintances. And and Scripture says Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And she treasured up every word of what the shepherds had seen and heard. And she, you know, compared every word that they had told her with the promises of the Messiah contained in the prophets and and what the angel Gabriel had announced to her, and, and on all sides confirmed her own belief that this child, so miraculously, so wonderfully born of her, was in fact the Son of God. You know, and I want to stop and say, just stop for a moment. We're so blessed to have our Catholic tradition. You know, this exegesis, it, we're so blessed to have the insights of the great theologians like, you know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Thomas Aquinas, but also the approved private revelations of, of the likes of Venerable Mary of Agreda or Blessed Dan Catherine Emmerich, who, who give us these details, you know, kind of fill in the blanks uh, with, their, with their pious uh, visions and uh, private revelations. So the angels sing glory to God in the highest, because our redemption began at the birth of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, the angels rejoice, and they sang glory to God, because the, you know, the unbelief and the disobedience of man had uh, robbed God of of the honor that was due to him. And Jesus Christ restored the honor of God by his obedience, by being obedient to the Heavenly Father, even, you know, obedient even unto death on the cross. And, of course, by teaching that the one, teaching us the one true faith in God and the true worship of God. And speaking of which, at this festive season of the year, uh, we're often greeted by Christmas cards and, uh, you know, social media messages. Of course, uh, Linus Van Pen held on a Charlie Brown Christmas saying, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And where does that come from? You know, um, the creator of Peanuts, Charles Schultz, was himself a Catholic, but he chose the King James Version for the Nativity Story for his uh, beloved cartoon special. Probably most Americans familiar with it. Well, I'm going to have a say about that, uh, King James versus uh, the Catholic editions and, and what... Uh, the angels were about when we come back with lots more no sense catholic 
right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So you guys stick with us, and we'll be back right after this message. Okay, talking about uh, peace on earth, goodwill towards man from the uh, King James Bible. You know, I have a priest friend in the Anglican Ordinariate, and he says the one thing he misses most after coming into full communion with the Catholic Church is saying Mass with the old King James Version of the Bible. Now, the Anglican use missal that's approved by the Catholic Church for the Ordinariate uses the Revised Standard Version which you may not know, uh, a Revised Standard Version Catholic edition. But that's a modern revision of the King James Version. And it is the translation chosen by Rome for the official English translations of Vatican documents. Only Americans use the New American Bible. English-speaking Catholics around the world use uh, the RSV or I think the New the, uh, Jerusalem Bible. Anyway, throughout the Anglophone world, though, the vast majority of biblical allusions in everyday speech come from the King James Bible. A fly in the ointment, a drop in the bucket, the salt of the earth, right, et cetera, et cetera. The old King James Version really is a, a beautiful translation, um, and purposely so. You know, by contrast, the, the English of the Catholic Dewey Reims Version is often, you know, complex and, and challenging. But there's a good reason for that, too. The, the, the lodestone of the Dewey Reims translation was adhering as closely as possible to St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, whereas the King James Version was made an eye, uh, with an eye to the English, and they sacrificed accuracy for eloquence. And many uh, modern Bible translations also sacrifice accuracy, but, but for the purpose of, of readability. And ironically, of course, it's precisely the meaning of Scripture that most often suffers as a consequence. Um, and perhaps it's well to recall the admonition of Thomas Kempis from the Imitation of Christ, he said, truth is, to be thought for, truth is to be sought for in sacred scripture, not eloquence. And in my work, I use a number of translations, even including the New American Bible. But in my personal life, I tend to stick with the old Dewey Reams. Anyway, here's the point. The message of the angel was not peace on earth with goodwill towards men, but on earth peace to men of goodwill. Our Lord Jesus Christ has brought peace to man by reconciling earth to heaven and by winning pardon and grace for us by his sacrifice on the cross. But this peace uh, on earth, which leads to the eternal peace of heaven, can only be obtained by those of goodwill. That is, by, by people who are willing to believe the doctrines of Christ and to correspond with his grace. The shepherds were men of goodwill, and they believed the angel and hastened to obey his instructions. And it's in this way that we should obey the inward and definitions of grace, and do what's right. And if we do that, then uh, one day we'll be with Jesus in heaven. <clears throat> Based on all of this, um, we can better understand the symbolism of the Christmas tree. Speaking of Christmas, the Christmas tree represents Jesus Christ, who is the true tree of life in, in, the, in the restored paradise. You know, just as uh, uh, Jesus and Mary are like the new Adam and the new Eve, he also is the, the new the tree of life. Um, he who eateth of this tree shall live, right? It's the opposite of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in, in Eden. Eat of this tree and you'll die. Eat of 
the tree of life, Jesus Christ, eat of this tree and live. The lights on the tree uh, are meant to show that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, full of grace and truth. The, uh, the various ornaments that we hang on the branches symbolize the rich gifts and blessings uh, of grace that are brought to us by Jesus Christ. And you know, we likewise give presents to each other. Because on this day, God has given his greatest gift to the world, namely his only begotten son, and with him, everything else. As he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things will be added unto you. A couple of weeks ago, I, I answered a question about the meaning of B.C. and A.D. Uh, B.C. meaning before Christ, and A.D. meaning Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord, uh, which counts from his nativity. Now, some secular-minded folks came up with the non-Christian designation B.C.E. and C.E., which stands before the Common Era, or C.E. for Common Era. But of course, <laughs> the fact still remains that it was the birth of Jesus Christ that gave us the new era, the Common Era, the era of grace and reconciliation. Uh, the year in which our Lord was born was the first year of the Christian era. And on Christmas Day of this year, uh, the year 2020, that means 2020 years have passed since the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, the final verse in our reading is that after eight days, the child was circumcised and his name was called Jesus. January 1st, the octave of Christmas, New Year's Day, that is the day when the church celebrates the feast of our Lord's circumcision in the extraordinary form. Uh, the Novus Ordo Missal refers to the feast as the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. But the Gospel reading is still that of the visit of the shepherds to the manger, and that after eight days our Lord was circumcised. So the question is, why did Jesus subject himself to circumcision? Um, our Lord was without sin, so he stood in no need of circumcision, but he submitted himself to the right for a number of reasons. First off, according to the prophecies, the Redeemer was to be a true Israelite and a son of Abraham, and to be such and to be recognized as such, he had to be circumcised. Number two, by his incarnation, our Lord took upon himself the sins of mankind so as to make satisfaction for them. And for this purpose, he per, uh, shed his precious blood for the first time in his circumcision and showed us that he was come to redeem us by his blood. Therefore, the name of Jesus, or Savior, was given to him at his circumcision, according to the custom of the Jews. And number three, by voluntarily obeying the law, <clears throat> pardon me, and submitting himself to circumcision, he wished to give us an example of obedience to the divine law. He submitted to the right as an example of obedience to the divine law. And now his name. The name of Jesus is, is the sweetest of all names, for if that blessed name did not exist, neither would there exist for us pardon or grace or eternal happiness. It is the object of our faith, our hope, and our love. Moreover, the name of Jesus testifies to the divine nature of the Redeemer, because it not only means Savior, but divine Savior. The Hebrew Yeshua is literally Yahweh saves. And it says to us, God is our salvation and deliverance. And so St. Paul writes in Philippians 2.10, In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, 
or under the earth. And all whatsoever you do in word or in work, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That's from Colossians 3.17. You know, it is the custom, uh, it was always the custom of priests uh, during the Holy Mass at any time that they would utter the holy name of Jesus, that they would bow their head. And if they were wearing their, um, you know, the hat, they would remove it. Even during the homily or reading the gospel or, you know, at, at any point uh, that the name of Jesus is said during the Mass. And that's, you know, nodding your head, bowing your head at the name of Jesus is just a good practice, I think, for all of us. You know, devotion to the holy name is one of the oldest and certainly one of the simplest of all devotions. It was promoted by the great 12th century doctor of the church, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was also responsible uh, for devotion to the holy face. And of course, you know, we're not going to get through a uh, <laughs> episode of, of no-nonsense Catholic without talking about Bernard of Clairvaux. But uh, St. Uh, rather, Father Paul O'Sullivan uh, wrote a popular booklet that you can still get from Tan Books, uh, on this subject, called The Wonders of the Holy Name. And I, I recommend it to you. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts. He says, The divine name is in truth a mine of riches. It is the fount of the highest holiness and the secret of the greatest happiness that a man can hope to enjoy on this earth. It is so powerful, so certain, that it never fails to produce in our souls the most wonderful results, consoles the saddest heart, and makes the weakest sinner strong. It obtains for us all kinds of favors and graces, spiritual and temporal. Two things we must do. First of all, we must understand clearly the meaning and value of the name of Jesus. Secondly, we must get into the habit of saying it devoutly, frequently, hundreds and hundreds of times every day. Far from being a burden, it will be an immense joy and consolation. The name of Jesus is sweet, gentle, and attractive. Devotion to it is a mark of predestination. That's the second point. The great saints of God you know, teach us that the name of Jesus contains within it one of the shortest and, and uh, easiest, that is, they would use the term sweet, the sweetest ways to acquiring and retaining the grace of a sure and sound sanctity, right? It's all about sanctification. That's the will of God for your life. St. Louis de Montfort said, what does the name of Jesus, the proper name of incarnate wisdom, signify to us, if not ardent charity, infinite love, and engaging gentleness? The distinctive characteristic of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is to love and save men. No song is sweeter, no voice more pleasing, no thought is more appealing than Jesus, the Son of God. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds to the ear and the heart of a chosen soul. Sweet as honey to the lips, a delightful melody to the ears, thrilling joy to the heart. And the third point, the holy name of Jesus is indulgenced and gains countless blessings for holy souls. St. Paul tells us that Jesus merited the name Jesus by his passion and death. Each time we say, Jesus, let us clearly wish to offer God all the masses being said all over the world for all our intentions. We thus share in these thousands of masses. He goes on, he says, each time we say Jesus, we gain a partial indulgence, which we may apply to the souls in purgatory. 
thus relieving and liberating very many of these holy souls from their awful pains. They thus become our best friends and pray for us with incredible fervor. Another easy and efficacious way is by the constant repetition of short indulgence prayers, applying the indulgence to the souls in purgatory. He says many people have the custom of saying 500 or 1,000 times each day, the little ejaculation, sacred heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee. Or the one word, Jesus. These are most consoling devotions. They bring oceans of grace to those who practice them and give immense relief to the holy souls. Okay, right back with more after this. Okay, welcome back to final round here on No Nonsense Catholic. I, before we get back into the program, just wanted to remind you, uh, this 16th of January of 2021, we will be having our Spiritual Warfare Conference. It's going to be live on YouTube, God's Patrimony or Man's Anarchy, and it's going to feature Jesse Romero and Dr. Dan Schneider, and they're going to be talking about uh, the history of spiritual warfare, uh, the need Need for virtue and prayer and spiritual warfare, uh, what we can learn from monastic tradition, uh, the importance of marriage and spirituality, children of God and the children of the devil, and uh, lots more, rosary, prayers, it's going to be terrific. You may, if you would like to uh, have access to the recordings after the program, after the live broadcast, you can register ahead of time, you pay, uh, make a small donation, you can also get yourself the coveted uh, spiritual warfare t-shirt, a special uh, new shirt each year and so you might want to avail yourselves of that and of course it will be live the 16th of january 2021 from 9 a.m until 3 p.m okay we were talking about um the holy name of jesus and how saying the holy name carries an indulgence and how uh, uh, and there are also uh, other ejaculatory prayers you know uh sacred heart of jesus i put my trust in thee or jesus i trust in you or just the word jesus um, and that you can uh, say them with an intention to offer the masses that are being said around the world and, and to um, also uh, uh, unite it to our Lord's passion. Um, the Holy Mass is celebrated around the clock and around the world. And every hour of the day, somewhere, the host and chalice are being raised, and our Lord becomes present in body, blood, soul, and divinity. And Father O'Sullivan reminds us that we can and should share in all of these. Right? The Mass brings Jesus to our altars, he says, at every Every Mass he's present here on earth as really when he became man in his mother's womb and sacrifices himself on the altar as really and truly as he did on Calvary. That that one sacrifice becomes present, though, in, in, a, in a mystical and unbloody manner. And so he says, every time you say Jesus, let your intention be to offer God all the infinite merits of the Incarnation, to offer to God the passion death of Jesus Christ, to offer to God all the Masses being celebrated in the world for his glory and our own intentions, all we have to do is say that one word, Jesus, but knowing what we're doing. And uh, he also uh, tells us that St. Matilda was accustomed to offer the passion of Jesus in union with the masses of the world for the souls in purgatory, and that our Lord showed her a vision of, of purgatory open and thousands of souls going up to heaven as a result of her prayer. And we can do the same when we say Jesus, to offer the passion and the masses of the world for ourselves or the souls in purgatory or any intention we please. And he says that we should also offer them to the world at large and our own country in particular. And speaking 
of our country. Uh, this has been um, a challenging year, to say the least, as an understatement, especially for people who love our country. And the drama, no doubt, will continue. I, I know there are those who hold out hope that by some, you know, perhaps some legal maneuver, President Trump will retain the White House. I mean, he actually made a speech about voter fraud last night, although the mainstream media ignored it. I imagine most Americans don't even know he made a speech. And so who knows what's going to happen next? But uh, I was speaking with a, a friend after mass on Sunday and we we're talking about it, if God should allow Biden to take office. And that does appear to be the way it's going. It, what do you make of that? And I started contemplating Mr. Trump's presidency, you know, and I, I haven't talked about this much purposely uh, during this election cycle and, and the rest of it, I'm trying to concentrate on um, seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice. But uh, but looking at uh, Trump's presidency, I mean, he, he have a man, certainly an outsider, uh, a maverick president, uh, who accomplished an amazing amount in four years. You know, I recall when he was running back in 2016, how President Obama and Vice President Biden just laughed him to scorn over promises he made uh, regarding jobs in the economy. Remember, you know, uh, Obama, oh, he loves my fantasy world. Where all these manufacturing jobs are going to come from? You going to wave a magic wand? He said the days of more than 2% economic growth are over and we'll never see 3% growth again. Right? So, so said the mighty O'Biden. Uh, but in less than four years, and virtually single-handed, I mean, not just single-handed, with, with almost everyone in the establishment on both sides of the aisle fighting against him tooth and nail, every step of the way and further hindered by a 24 hour day, seven day a week barrage of nonstop lies in the media, not to mention a plethora of false legal accusations. 4 million jobs were created. More than 400,000 of them were manufacturing jobs. I guess he waved his magic wand. In fact, more Americans were employed than ever before in our history. Economic growth in 2018 hit 4.2%, more than double what Obama said it would never go beyond. New unemployment claims hit a 49-year low. Median household income hit the highest level ever. African-American unemployment reached the lowest rate ever. Hispanic-American unemployment, lowest rate ever recorded. Asian-American unemployment, lowest rate ever recorded. Women's unemployment, lowest rate in 65 years. Youth unemployment, lowest rate in half a century. We enjoyed the lowest unemployment rate ever recorded for Americans without a high school diploma. And veterans' unemployment reached the lowest rate in 20 years. And this is after years of false allegations about his, his alleged Russian collusion, which the courts deigned to hear, even though they won't listen to his election fraud uh, uh, suits. His adversaries finally had to concede that they simply had no evidence. Not to mention the, the undeniable fact that Trump's the most pro-life president since Roe versus Wade. And he has done more for the pro-life cause uh, in, the, in the way of policy than... Than, than all of them combined. And I suspect if it had not been for the, uh, the insane reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, there would have been no stopping his re-election. Even now, the vast majority of Republicans and even a solid minority of Democrats believe that the 2020 election was stolen from him. And if they can do this to the President of the United States, and by they, I mean the global progressives in government and the media and the academy, if they can do this to the leader of the free world just because they don't like him personally what can't they do to you and me 
But the bigger question is, why would God allow this to take place? Why allow Trump to do so much good and then allow it to be snatched away? Why allow the forces of globalism to literally shut down the world's economy, thrusting countless people into poverty, tens of thousands of deaths by starvation and suicide, even, even hamstringing the very worship of God by those who, who are faithful to him? Well, what if God, as he allowed again and again throughout the history of the kings of Israel, is bringing home the point of Psalm 145? Put not your trust in princes, in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. My point is this. You can't win when the other side won't play by the rules. But you also can't break the rules yourself without becoming like them. And so all earthly kingdoms fall precisely because they are earthly kingdoms. The only one that endures forever is the kingdom of God. And if I recall correctly, Christ the King told Pilate quite explicitly, my kingdom is not of this world. And he told his followers, the kingdom of God is within you. And where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. When you gather with your family to pray the rosary, Christ the King is there. When you're in a state of grace, you enjoy the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity, and the kingdom of God is within you. This is a kingdom that is not of this world, and it is a kingdom over which the gates of hell shall not prevail. It is a kingdom that can never be taken from you. And this is the Lord, the message of our Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Be ye perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. It's the message of Vatican II. It's the universal call to holiness. It is the will of God for you, your sanctification. It's the message of John Paul II and his pastoral plan for the third millennium. And it's the message of Our Lady of America that I mentioned last week. Specifically, the message of Our Lady the Immaculate Virgin, patroness of America, that was approved by the bishops in May of this year for private devotion, is to imitate the purity of Our Lady and the virtues of St. Joseph and to practice sincere devotion to the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity. I'm grateful to the bishops of confidence who decreed that Our Lady of America is approved for private devotion. In fact, I'm glad in a way that they didn't authorize a public cult. We don't need any, any Our Lady of America felt banners or liturgical dancers or any of that. She is the Immaculate Conception, and we have the 8th of December as our patronal feast for this country. Our Lady of America told Sister Mary Ephraim that she desired the bishops to, to process with her image into the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception on its completion back, back in the 1950s. Well, they didn't. It's like the Holy Father didn't consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart in 1917. So World War II happened, and Russia spread the eras of socialism and communism around the world, as Our Lady predicted at Fatima. And likewise, the family and, and the purity uh, in our country has collapsed right here in the United States, which is what she was warning us against. But the way forward lies in her instructions, not to the bishops, but to the faithful. Recite the rosary every day. Imitate her purity and the virtues of St. Joseph and the Holy Family of Nazareth. Pray to the most holy indwelling trinity. Remember that when the kingdom of God is within you with your sanctifying grace, it's a kingdom no one can take away. Think of the words of St. Paul to the Romans. Chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. 
Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or persecution or the sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are put to death all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overcome because of him that hath loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor might, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mentioned last week the Church has determined Our Lady of America to be a private devotion. That doesn't mean it can only be practiced in private. Holy Rosary is a private devotion, right? Now, with that in mind, uh, Karen Jabson and the John Leaps Evangelization Group out in New Jersey have organized a special Rosary Congress from January 1st through the 7th. Now, I've been out to New Jersey. I've spoken to their group at the big conference they have uh, annually a year or two ago. I did a virtual conference for them via Zoom uh, in 2020, and now they're doing a Rosary Congress, which is also called a Siege of Jericho, because it consists of seven days of 24-hour Eucharistic adoration. All right, and since they can't do that in one place because of COVID restrictions, they're asking people to sign up for an hour of Eucharistic adoration if you can get in front of the, uh, the uh, Blessed Sacrament and to pray the rosary at the top of the hour for the intentions of Our Lady, Patroness of America, during um, these times. And I know I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't have the latitude here in California, but I will be praying and uniting my prayers to theirs during those seven days. And I hope you to go to John Leap's dot com, J-O-H-N, 